This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Who doesn't love the idea of picking healthy, homegrown food from our own gardens? But the reality doesn't always match the dream. So what steps can we all take to enjoy good eating this summer? Hello, I'm Lucy, and for this food-focused episode, I've turned to Monty Don to share his tips for success. We know him, of course, as the lead presenter of Gardener's World, but he's also the author, with his wife Sarah, of several cookbooks. So we'll hear about his favourite food, how he ensures the best harvests, and what to sow now for good pickings in the months ahead. But I started by asking him, what does he most look forward to from the summer veg plot? The thing is, I look forward to things in season. So I don't, there is no one harvest that I regard as superior to any others. But at any different time, there's always one that I'm particularly anticipating. So for example, at the moment, we've just made the transition in the last week from eating winter salad leaves to spring lettuce. And they seem to be you know, lettuce like little gem, tom thumb. Um, we have, uh, there's all year round, there's, there's various others that seem to have a particular freshness that winter salad leaves don't have. And I associate that with April. Um, the, I also, particularly in March, love the first rocket that we grow. Again, that has a particular buttery, velvety softness and freshness. Not necessarily words you associate with rocket, but it's true, uh, that I love. Um, Then, quite soon, they've just started to appear, but we haven't really started to harvest, there's asparagus. And asparagus, to me, is May. And that's very much the season. Um, I had for breakfast this morning a charred omelette, And I can't tell you how delicious it was because the fresh regrowth of chard, I'm suddenly become in love with chard, but chard, which one thinks of as a sort of fairly unromantic vegetable that that 
is sort of winter and summer spring. The fresh regrowth in spring is fantastic. It's lovely. Um, and I can talk you through month by month. You know, it, it, it's the, the first broad beans in June, uh, the first peas, which come a little bit later, sort of end of June, July. Um, we have, you know, and then moving on through the seasons, the sweet corn and, and the squashes and the courgettes and, and obviously uh, tomatoes. Tomatoes, I think, are a really big thing in my life. Um, as you know, I grow a lot and I really value them and we value them as a family. So we, um, I eat tomato sauce in some form or other, I would say on average, at least 100 times a year and probably twice that, you know, sort of three, four times a week not necessarily with pasta, but say with pasta at least twice a week and have done for the last 25 years. So, and I always, I only ever use our own tomatoes. So that's a really big thing. Um, and some surprising things like, you know, parsley, basil. I, I We grow those with the vegetable garden. That's really important. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's I, th I think the, the key point, and this is a very long answer, <laughs> the key point is that it's not the rare and the unusual I look for. It's the familiar that's coming round again in its season. So it could be potatoes, you know. It could be, it's, it's, it's not melons or aubergines or something else that I might grow, but, but as a side event, they're not really the important thing. The important thing are these familiar main crops that are the basis of my diet. Because these flavours, I know how much they they punctuate your menus, they punctuate your cooking. You know, I, I'm, your lovely book, Home Cooking, which you wrote with Sarah, is literally that. It's that, it's that sort of delicious, you know, um, course by course and month by month exploration, really, of how you cook. And I wondered whether or not your sort of relationship with food, how it's developed as a gardener. Because obviously everybody grows up, their, their, their mum and their dad or their mum particularly cooks for them. You get a sort of sense of the food you love quite early on in life. Did, has, how's that changed for you? Has, has it changed? Uh, I think that, well, the thing that's changed is I grew up in the 50s and 60s, essentially. So, uh, I mean, to a certain extent in the 70s. But, but it was very much a period when traditional English cooking dominated everybody's diet and menus you know it it was you had a roast on sunday you had cold meat on on monday you had shepherd's pie on tuesday you had liver and bacon or chops uh, it was always based around meat you if it wasn't it'd be macaroni cheese or cauliflower cheese or or you know uh, you had a stew you had uh, you might on fridays we always had fish of some sort even though that's a Catholic thing and we were not Catholics, you know, it was it was absolutely in the warp and weft. Um, there may be sausages, but it was, it, you could tell the day of the week by what you ate. Probably not over a seven-day cycle, but over about a 10-day cycle. Now, when these dishes were cooked very well, half of them, you, I, you, I, absolutely loved and looked forward to. Great, it's Thursday, it's going to be toad in the hole or whatever it was that is your favourite. And of course now, uh, and, I, and I, it, that has all changed. For my generation, there was a huge change in the 70s and 80s because we started to eat European food. Not 
Far Eastern, not Middle Eastern, not South American or Mongolian, let alone South Korean or Japanese or anything like that. We started to eat Italian food and French food and to a certain extent Spanish food. And that was that was just a dramatic shift. We started to eat pasta. We had risotto, you know. We would eat avocados. And, 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 and to someone under, what, 50, 40, that's unimaginable. But it was absolutely central and, and a huge change. And for Sarah and I, we've never really deviated from that shift. In other words, our cuisine, our diet, our whole attitude to food is as strongly formed by Southern Europe as it is by our English childhoods. And so it's a combination of those two things. And I think the home cookbook and, uh, completely expresses that and what we grow in the garden. It was, um, and you know, as a gardener, I think it's hard for anybody under 40 to realise the influx of seeds that came in. For instance, chicory. Nobody grew chicory. You grew Whitloof chicory or you grew endive. And that was it, really. Um, you couldn't even buy it, let alone grow it. You certainly couldn't get the seeds. The first chicory I grew, I got from Venice. I bought in Venice. And, and, and that was not so very long ago. That was the early 90s. I mean, okay, that is a long time ago. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 I mean, it doesn't feel like a long time ago. It was, it was, I was in my 30s before I found the seeds, the chicory. Um, tomatoes. To suddenly realise what tomatoes could and should be like. Um, and not just something that was a greenhouse produce, you know, the, 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 the absolute tried and tested standby tomatoes that my parents grew and everybody grew suddenly you realise that this was a staple in Southern Europe. This was something that people grew outdoors and was had incredible intensity of taste. Um, and also, growing up, a tomato, you either ate raw in a salad or in a sandwich, which I have to say is utterly delicious, a tomato sandwich, um, or fried and maybe stuffed. Maybe stuffed with, with would you remember stuffed tomato? God, I haven't had a stuffed tomato for a long time. So be, but, but, but the idea of tomato sauce didn't really exist. Not a good one, you know, maybe as bolognese a bit. But you, my mother used to squirt it out of a tube if she wanted tomato sauce. That's right. Um, or, or from a can of plum tomatoes. Yeah. I mean, I have to say plum tomatoes, if you haven't got any of your own, plum tomatoes are a very good substitute. They're fantastic. But so, I mean, I'm focusing on tomatoes when it could be other things. And also, I mean, take courgettes. We now take courgettes for granted. When I was growing up, they did exist and people did eat them, but, but you ate marrow and, and you had stuffed marrow or with white sauce. And it was a great big thing that was, and I remember it was always served on a saucer in a dish because it was so wet that it, the water would then drain off it. And it was a sort of soggy, not entirely unpleasant. We cooked it the other day a few years ago for my children to show them what it was like intending them to show how potentially disgusting it was they loved it no way <laughs> <laughs> and you thought but, it was a penance <laughs> yeah so so that my my whole sort of culinary education came um from sort of elizabeth david jane grigson um, people who had travelled in the 50s and 60s and came home and wrote about it. And then 
I started to travel, well, seriously in the 80s. I mean, I'd vaguely been abroad before then, but hardly. And ate. And that was the thing. You went out and you ate all this extraordinary food and then you discovered how to cook it. And, and that's the key, I guess, to bring it back to the garden, isn't it? That's the key to a successful veg garden is, and it's stating the obvious, but it's grow what you love to eat. Absolutely. And 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 it's stating the obvious, but actually it hasn't been obvious in, in English gardening. There has been a, a dislocation between growing and eating, partly because it was mainly men that grew vegetables. And it was, as you said in your introduction, mainly women that cooked so you would, men and would, I mean, this happened in my childhood, would come in, deposit the vegetables on a table, in a sink, you know, outside the back door, wherever it might be. And that was the last they had to do with them before eating them. And they had no idea how to cook them or prepare them. And half the vegetables they grew, they didn't even like to eat. It, you know, it, it wasn't really grown for that purpose. So I think sort of the flower show or the, res- the respect of one's peers was more important than what happened on the plate for an awful lot of male gardeners. Right, up, well, I suspect it still is to some, but right up into the 80s, I think that was true. Well, you know, you have to say the giant veg show still carries on. And it's hilarious. I mean, who doesn't love to see the most enormous pumpkin? A giant veg is an expression of eccentricity. And, and the, you know, the British love eccentricity. But it has nothing to do with food at all. The fact that they are potentially edible, they might as well be made out of plasticine. They, they remind me in the same, in a sense, you know, if you go to Japan, you'll see uh, in, in the window of a sushi restaurant immaculate versions of all the sushi they serve that are in plaster or in, in whatever, you know, whatever material. They're not real. Uh, they're not real. They're, they're not for consumption. Now, I used to be slightly miffed by that. I thought that, you know, it's just ridiculous. Why why would you grow vegetables that you can't eat? I now see it as a playful thing that is made the more endearing by the intense seriousness with which people take it. You know, it, it's, it really, really matters to them. But of course, it doesn't matter at all. Well, I think, and I think that in a nutshell is the eccentricity you talk about. But I think it's important to make that separation because you know lots of people will be listening to this podcast who've who've started some things. Um, you know, th- th- here we are in early summer, thinking how do I get how do I get more from my crops? I guess the first thing is not to try and be competitive. Um, so I think you know that's that's let, let's talk about that because it's a natural segue from this this sort of crazy world of giant veg into actually what 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 is a healthy you know, great harvest, what what should you be aiming for? Well, um, a healthy plant of any sort, whether it be a marrow or a marigold, is one that has best adapted to the situation it finds itself in. Um, and that's, particu- that's not particularly helpful for the, the, the gardener starting out because, you know, what does that mean? But But it's always a fundamental truth. So if you have wonderful soil, you will grow bigger, seemingly better plants. But actually, they won't be any healthier than those grown in poor soil. Because if it's adapted, it might be smaller, it might might be less productive. But that's because it's adapted. So that's the first thing is, you can only control what you can control. Now, you, if you're a vegetable grower, you should 
work quite hard to improve the quality of your soil because it will bear very, very measured and marked results. Um, and to a certain extent, size matters, if not individually, in size of harvest. So if you're growing, a tom- let's say, a broad bee plant and it only has four pods on it, um, that's not, however wonderful the beans inside those pods, that's not very satisfactory. So you want a broad bean plant that maybe has 20, 30 pods on it. And there's no reason why the beans on those 30 pods shouldn't be every bit as good as the beans in the four. So that's usually a direct result of the quality of the soil. But also, there there are so many other factors. You know, there's the weather that you can't control. There's timing, which I regard as the single most important thing that you can control, and we could talk more about that. Um, And there is a kind of fundamental understanding of what the plant is trying to do, and that's... That's really difficult to teach because it comes with experience. But, but you know, if you have... We just today pulled up the purple sprouting broccoli. It's starting with this warm weather we've just been having. It's all madly going to seed and starting to flower, and that's the end of it. Now, purple sprouting broccoli, we've also sown the seeds. So between now and next February... All we're trying to do is make a strong, healthy plant that bears no harvest of any kind whatsoever. It's a real slow burner, um, but its its size and its health will will bear fruit, literally, in a certain extent, only for about four or five weeks. For us, March really is its month. March and into April, entirely dependent upon weather. Of the delicious, very small broccoli heads, the purple heads, completely unlike the great big sort of carbuncles that you buy in in supermarkets. And that's worth it. So what you're trying to do in that is is your spacing, your timing. You sow the seeds early, you know, almost a year before you harvest. You grow them on. You're in no great hurry to plant them out, but it's worth pricking them out. It's worth potting them on. Because all the time you're trying to develop a good root system, you plant them out. You don't plant them too close together because you know that it's a really healthy plant. You want to be quite wide. Um, whereas uh, a radish, which I sowed some a couple of weeks ago, is an in-out plant. It's, it's something that has such a finite lifespan. And if it, it, it really isn't going to serve you any goodness whatsoever um, beyond five weeks, maybe six Um in other words, you, speed is of the essence. You want it to, so it's therefore absolutely not worth pricking out or, or, or potting on or anything like that. Sow it direct. Um, harvest it as soon as it's big enough to enjoy. Don't let it get too big. And as soon as it starts to bolt, the game is up. There's nothing you can do to reverse that and whip it out. So speed on that and simplicity. Don't faff about. Just sow some seed, either in a row or broadcast. Make sure it doesn't dry out. Uh, and and keep it pushing on. Um, so two the two opposites, the two extremes there. And if you and that comes really partly to a gardening knowledge, which you can read about or you can find out. But I think also really importantly, an eating knowledge. What am I getting from this? Is it you know because radish is all about freshness. It may be peppery, but it's that that sort of that wet 
crunchy, peppery freshness. As tired, stale radish, is, it's just not very good. Um, I said this morning that I had a, a charred um, omelette. Now, that's a plant whereby you sow it and you grow it and you get a harvest relatively slowly, but when you cut it back, it grows back two or three times. And actually, in my experience, the second and the third regrowth is better than the first. So, in other, I don't know why. It's just, just, just for instance, the spring chard from plants that we were harvesting as, re, as long ago as last August is better. It's at its best. Um, it's a very tough plant. So in other words, you can afford, it's another slow burner, but unlike the broccoli, which then has a very short harvest time, this has a very long harvest time. You go on harvesting it, on and on and on. It's wonderful. Um, and I could go through each individual vegetable and we would analyse, you know, how, how its growth reflected its, its edibility and all the rest of it. But I think that, that timing, and in this country not much is going to grow outside before March and not much is going to grow outside after October. So in that slot, getting seeds sown at the right time, planted out at the right time and harvested at the right time is key. And by the same token, and it comes back to food again, managing glut, managing steady supply. Nobody wants a glut of lettuce. Not good for much. I'm sure you could probably make lettuce soup and freeze it. Uh, and I'm sure someone will, will, will come in with a recipe that will cope with it. But by and large, if all your lettuce bolts at the same time, uh, what we do is they go to the chickens and hopefully they get converted into eggs, you know, or very worst thing that happens is they go to the compost heap and that goes back into the ground. So therefore, you want a succession of lettuce. You want You want a constant harvest. And although it looks good to have a bed full of 50 lettuce, all at the same stage, unless you've got 50 people to eat them, it's, it's a mug's game. Yeah, yeah. But you're impressing nobody. Well, you're, you're certainly leaping ahead there to something I wanted to talk about, which was succession sowing. But, but just wanted to bring you back to that, the, these kind of keys to a successful harvest. You've obviously mentioned the soil, absolute fundamental. You've mentioned timing. What are the other key things that, you know, I'm thinking? Light. Yep. Mm-hmm. You, you're really pushed to grow many vegetables in shade. Um, in, a hot, in summer, shade is very useful for lettuce and spinach. Um, you can grow some root crops in, 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 in light shade, but uh, by and large, your vegetable plot, be it some pots or a window box or a large allotment, wants to be as sunny as possible. Your soil wants to be water-retentive and yet well-drained. Um, That's an elusive combination. <laughs> yeah, that, that incredibly elusive combination, but, but the, the thing is it's attainable. It's the magic of organic matter, you know, the magic word loam, that, that will, this extraordinary ability of a good soil to hold enough moisture and get rid of the ex- excess. And of course, what is enough and what is excess is determined by what needs it. So if you have a really greedy plant, it's going to need a lot of water. Um, and if you have one that is really not taking up much moisture and would be easily drowned in moisture, then it doesn't need so much. Um, you need the seasons. You need light, the light, not just sunlight, but actually length of light. A lot of vegetables respond to day length. 
and light intensity. So, for example, we sow our chili seeds in January and very early February. And they go into the greenhouse and they germinate slowly. It takes about three weeks for them to germinate. And the seedlings grow painfully slowly for the first month. Um, they're now picking up like Topsy. They're really growing much, much faster um, because of the light and, and the extra heat that they get. But if we delayed till now, uh, they, they would be too small by the time they started to pick up. They never catch up. You need that slow length of time to get a decent chili size because the bigger the plant, the more fruit you're going to have on it. It's a very simple equation. Um, some seeds, it's not worth sowing them before April. Um, we could think of, I've, this this weekend I sowed all my squash, I sowed aubergines, I sowed, uh, you know, the whole cucurbit family. Um, not much point in sowing them before because you're not going to be able to plant them out until mid-June, maybe even July, because they don't like cold nights. And similarly in June, there are certain plants that you wouldn't sow really before midsummer. No, I mean, I, I found that um, Florence fennel, sweet corn, uh, they they do very well from a, a, a July sowing, June sowing. Um, then there are other crops that you skip. So, for example, rocket does very well in cool weather. So you sow that in January, February, and again, perhaps in March, although the March sowing has a very short window before it bolts. Um, the March sowing, of course, which you'll plant out in May, so you've basically just got the month of May. Uh, and then you won't bother to sow it again until August. And the, what you sow in August will go out in September when the nights are getting cooler and the day length is a bit shorter. And actually, a really good late September, October rocket is delicious because it, you've skipped that hot period. So, you know, you, you manipulate it. Uh, I mean, I'm very aware when I'm saying this to you, that there's a wadge of quite daunting knowledge that if you're starting out, you think, how on earth am I meant to remember all that? And of course, you're not. You don't. Nobody does. You just do it bit by bit by bit. You accumulate knowledge. And it's completely fine to have failure because failure teaches you so much. And it's also fine to do something which some an expert, whatever that means, would regard as not very successful, but delights you and, and is fantastic. You grow some carrots, you grow some broad beans, you know, and okay, they're not the best, and okay, they may only have four or five pods, or the carrots are a bit wonky, but they taste good and you did it. And that's the start. And then you do it again, and you do it a bit better. And then what happens? You do it better, 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 and you start to tell other people how to do it, and then you go and do it, and it doesn't work. And that's when you start to learn. <laughs> <laughs> like all these things, it's, it, it's yes, you're layering your knowledge and then the observation comes in when something goes a bit left field or something goes haywire. And then it really makes you question, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's, it's only when you question what you thought you knew that you really start to apply, sort of acquire expertise. And you can't fake that. You can't shortcut that process. So it doesn't matter. You know, this, as, you, as you said earlier, it's not a competition. It's not a race. And that's the beauty of it. It's an absolute joy. And some people, from day one, grow marvellous, I don't know, aubergines or something like that, which are quite tricky to grow. 
Um, and you don't quite know how they do it. And they're doing everything wrong. You know, they're, doing, they're sowing them at the wrong time. The compost isn't the right. They're overwatering, underwatering. It's in the shade. It's in the sun. Whatever. They, they just can do it. And other things which the rest of us find easy peasy, they struggle with. But go to any allotment and you'll find every permutation of all that kind of thing. I guess the question is, how much come early summer can you do to influence that harvest? Because all we've talked about so far is really about timing, about soil, about preparation, 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 preparation. By the time you hit June, even July, can you be influencing your harvest? Um, maybe the way you pick, the way you water, the way you feed, um, the way you shade? Well, I mean, I, I'm assuming you mean can you influence what you have already done? Because I was stressed that if you've not done anything before the beginning of June, there's still plenty of time to, to start. I mean, that, you haven't missed the boat. But to influence what you've already sown and committed to, uh, yeah, sure you can. Uh, spacing. Um the competition, weeding. You know, vegetables don't grow well with weeds. Uh, the reason why you grow vegetables in rows or in grids is because it makes it easier to weed them. Uh, it's really for no other reason at all. Uh, and the best way to weed vegetables is to use a hoe. I mean, if you've got perennial weeds, you do have to dig them out. But So Weeds are incredibly greedy for water and nutrients. So you can certainly uh, make your crop a lot worse by not weeding and you are therefore better by weeding. Um, regular water supply, not an erratic water supply. That's really important. Uh, erratic water stresses a plant. And when vegetables are stressed, they normally react by going to seed. Uh, so, for example, I one year was growing some leeks and they suddenly, out of the blue, in early July, all went to seed, almost overnight. And I've grown leeks all my life and I couldn't quite work it out. And then I remembered in April there was a period when we, it was incredibly dry and they, they, I planted them out and I'd watered them in, as you do. You make a hole and you put them in and you fill the hole with water. But I'd left it at that. And because it was April, I thought, well, they won't need watering. doesn't matter. But rather like this April when it's incredibly dry. Uh, and what they were doing in July was reacting to what happened in April. And they had stored that stress and that the first opportunity they then set seed, which was July. And when a, a vegetable sets seed or bolts, basically it's a survival mechanism. It's saying, let's get out of here. And before I go, let's spread my seed and, uh, and reproduce. And for some, it's an inevitable process. You know, every garlic is going to set seed. Every And, and biennials, like parsley, the whole carrot family, they'll do that, whatever. Um, so... The, the two things you can control about that, you can't control the temperature, but you can control watering, and consistency is the key. And, it's, it's, and that's true of all vegetables, whether it's in a greenhouse, in a pot, or outside in the garden. Um, and that goes back, and that's interlinked to soil. The better the quality of your soil, the more it will store moisture. So therefore, the less you have to worry about that. It will release the moisture more steadily. Um I think you can watch out for obvious 
predators like um, cabbage whites you can protect, like like carrot fly, uh, like uh, black fly on uh, broad beans, although actually they don't limit the crop really. Um, and you can take steps. I mean, prevention is always better than cure. So simple netting usually is as good as anything. Um, pigeons, real problem. I mean, it may seem a very sort of obvious thing, but it can be a real problem, pigeons. So you need to net before the pigeons get them, not afterwards. Um, and they are a great lover of leaves, soft new yeah, leaves. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and well, rabbits too, if you're in, if you're in the vicinity. Rabbits, of... pigeons, um, chickens. God damn them. If the chickens get out, they will rip through a lettuce patch or, or whatever, or young leaves of any sort. Um, blackbirds. Blackbirds in a greenhouse can really make play havoc with tomatoes. This winter, we've had problems with pheasants coming into the greenhouse and eating the leaves. We've had to net against that. Wasps. Um eat the grapes in the greenhouse. Slugs, of course, slugs and snails, um, strawberries, you know. Get, uh, people obsess about slugs and snails without realising that there is almost no point in trying to limit them, their, their population, because their population densities far exceed any kind of measures you can take. You know, they exist by the hundreds of thousands in our soil. What you can do is provide predators you, and you can provide uh, basically plants that are not attractive to them. And, and the most attractive plant to a slug and snail is one that is soft and succulent and that usually means young or diseased or stressed in any way. And what we found in very early years here when I used to do a lot more direct sowing was that when seedlings appeared almost in the first day, certainly the first days, that's when they got eaten. So now we grow as whatever we can, we grow under cover and prick it out and plant it out. And once the plant is growing strongly, they tend to be left alone. I mean, there are exceptions to the rule, but it tends to be that they are not damaged. And by June, July, when I harvest the lettuce for supper, and it will be quite big, um, it can look perfect to the outside eye. When I wash it, I can wash out five or six slugs, usually smallish. Um, so in other words, there are slugs and they are eating it, but in such a, such a sort of minor way that it doesn't in any way deprive us of our plant. But if those five or six had attacked that lettuce when it was yay big, it would have killed it or, or ruined it. So, so that's, you know, a defense, that's, a, that's a management technique. Really? Yeah, I mean that's a great tip, and I know I know you've been advocating that for a long time. It is so so in modules. Let that plant grow on. Give it a good start, and that good start then delivers the result later a on. A healthy plant mm-hmm. will either not be attractive to slugs and snails, or be able to cope with whatever attraction they have. Um, slugs and snails have evolved to eat rotting vegetation. And it's just unfortunate that a lot of the vegetables we grow have the same consistency as rotting vegetation. Um, they love things like celery stalks and, um, 
you know, cardoons, that, that slightly sort of stringy, watery texture. They love that. They love the soft leaves of lettuce and, you know, they love hostas, we all know. But actually, as I've said to you often uh, at different times, the hostas we grow in our garden are barely touched by slugs hostels. And we, we've got lots. Uh, whereas if you grow them in a pot, you may not think they're stressed, but they are. Because you're either watering erratically or they just simply don't have enough water or food. So it, it, it's putting it looking good, but it's putting much more energy into looking good. And that's stressing it. And the slug and the snail will, will find that. So that's a really big lesson, isn't it? That that um, and you said it before. Uh, observation at a, at every point. The first rule of good gardening is pay attention. Just use your eyes. Um, every day, I walk around this garden three, four times, and that walking around is the single most important bit of gardening I do every day. What's happening? What's going on? Um, a lot of it is almost subliminal. I'm not, even, I'm not thinking what is happening to that wallflower or what is happening to that onion. Um, but it's going in and I'm noticing. And obviously what I'm looking for are changes, good and bad, uh, where we are. And at this time of year, where we are can change from morning till night. You know, for instance, the big change over this weekend is all the apple blossoms come out. Now, last year, when we had all the frosts in April, uh, apple blossom plus frost were really bad news. And we had a terrible apple harvest, uh, which was as much due to the lack of insects about in the cold as it was to the frost damaging the, the apples. Um, now, that's a really obvious thing to notice. You know, blossom plus frost, not good. <laughs> so what does that mean? It doesn't just mean, oh dear, the frost, the blossom won't look so pretty. It means the fruit won't set and form and won't be pollinated. So therefore I can think ahead and think, okay, we're gonna have we're gonna have problems there. So I expect that to happen. Not much I can do about it, but at least it's information that goes into the system. Uh, more importantly, um, you know, little things like over the weekend I had a tray of endive, and I thought, well, it was intended to go into the greenhouse. But actually I thought. If I put that in now, I'm not going to be harvesting that for about three, four weeks, which is going to take me through to the middle of May. I've got tomatoes I'm going to want to plant out then. So actually, I've got a clash. I've got a, I've got a timing clash. So I've got a bed of elephant garlic, which had, got rocket, had had rocket in it that I'd sown before the elephant garlic appeared and had overwintered. And there were a few plants left that I'd been picking from a bit, but I, I cut my losses. I pulled up the rocket and planted out the endive in between the elephant garlic to use the space as a sort of catch crop. Now, the endive won't do as well outside as it would have done in the greenhouse. And at some point, there may be a clash with the elephant garlic. But you make a decision, I will get a reasonable endive harvest. And it certainly won't harm the elephant garlic. But that was a decision I only made on Sunday morning and put into effect on Sunday afternoon. On Saturday, I hadn't, I, I hadn't, you know, come to that. So every day you're making little decisions like that in terms of what to sow, when to sow it, where it goes, what to harden off, um, how much hardening off it needs. You know, you watch the weather forecast all the time. You see, you feel your soil. 
lovely sunny day at this time of year. You can have a beautiful day, shirt sleeve weather, put your hand in the soil and it's icy. Yes. Because it takes more, A, it takes more than a few warm days to warm up and B, what's the temperature like at night? And what do you what do you cool. reckon that time lag is? Because it's that, again, that's uh, if you're starting out, that's quite a hard thing to to know and to sort of establish. So, you know, we feel the sun on our back, but how long before that soil catches up? Well, it depends on your soil. If you've got clay soil, it could be up to two weeks before the soil warms up sufficiently for seeds to germinate or seedlings to grow. If you've got sandy soil, it could be three or four days. You know, less than half the time because it, it, it drains quicker, and it's the water. The wetter the soil, the slower it will be to warm up. And clay soil holds moisture much better. Um, by the same token, once it does warm up, clay soil, it, you need to water less often. It cools down slower and holds nutrients better. So, that you know, it swings and roundabouts. Um but, you know, you, you can't replace, feel it, touch it. Does it feel cold? And that's that's the simple answer. Uh, the other thing is, if you follow my process of, of sowing as much as you can in modules and, um, and planting them out, don't expect something to go from a warm greenhouse, because at this time of year, the greenhouse gets really warm, or the porch, or the windowsill. It can be up to 30 degrees. Take it straight out, stick it into cold soil, and the nighttime temperature will drop down to two, three degrees, which it has been doing here, if not frosty. Uh, the plant won't be killed, but it will freeze. And when I say freeze, I don't mean literally freeze. It'll it'll stop in its tracks. It'll stop growing. Sometimes for ten days to two weeks, and that's when the slugs and snails get it, even if it's a healthy plant that has been growing strongly. So you've just got to think these things through. And that can be a big issue for tomatoes, I know. I've, we've all made that mistake. You know, you rush to either, I know you grow more of your tomatoes indoors than out, but I know you grow them outdoors as well. And you tend to make those decisions and think, ah, I'll just, you know, it's worth a try. But just stopping a tomato plant in particular does seem You've to have got a long-term... The thing term... about tomatoes is, is if you're going to grow them outdoors, many people, myself included, sow them too early. I don't think, certainly where I live, it's not a good idea to plant outdoor tomatoes before at least the second week of June. Not because the daytime weather is not high enough, but you have the nighttime weather is too cold. And also tomatoes hate erratic anything. They don't like erratic watering. They don't like erratic temperatures. They don't like erratic light. Steadiness really is important to tomatoes. So if you're outside... Uh, particularly in a sunny spot, it can really get quite warm during the day in June, you know, and get up to 28, 30 degrees. But nighttime temperatures very often drop. Um, and you're far better off having it somewhere where it gets to 20 degrees or 25 degrees, and then it drops to, say, 10 at night. 10 degree fluctuation is about right for tomatoes. So, I would say that for outdoor tomatoes, if you know you're going to grow them outdoor tomatoes, there's no point in sowing them before mid-April or early April, perhaps. So you want a nice, strong plant, but it doesn't want to be too big that's outgrown its pot or outgrown it, you know, you've had to store. Um, and then plant it out in mid-June and aim for harvest in September, which is fine, absolutely fine. Whereas your greenhouse ones... 
you can be harvesting in July. Uh, and I, last year, I planted greenhouse ones out at the beginning of May. Uh, this year, it'll be more like the middle of May. So it, <laughs> I think as a vegetable grower in particular, most vegetables are annuals. Annuals are very sensitive to light and to heat. And tender annuals, like sweet corn, like most bee, like like climbing beans, French beans, um, are response are responsive to heat. Tomatoes, aubergines, bananas, and uh, hardy annuals, like broad beans, like peas, um, carrots, are very responsive to light. And you you manipulate that responsiveness, and you work with it, uh, and. and it's, it's a pretty simple rule of thumb. Go with the heat. And I think with climate change, um, October is becoming a very rich harvest time for vegetables. And November is becoming our autumn month when the, when the season dies back. And it's not really till mid, even late November, that you start winding up the vegetable garden for winter. Uh, and I think the other thing, which is, talking about timing, which which newcomers find tricky, is the hungry gap, which you know all about. But, I mean, it's... it's, And the hungry gap, for anyone listening that doesn't know it, is that period between winter and summer when the spring vegetables that you've sown have not yet matured to harvesting point. And actually, it's quite late. It's May, June. That's right. It's the time that you least expect it when you've not got that sort of history or knowledge of growing, you sort of expect that difficult time to be in the winter, but it's 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 far no. from it. No, and 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 a vegetable garden can look and be quite productive in winter. I mean, you've got all your root crops, you've got your brassicas, you probably, if it's a mild winter, like increasingly there have been, uh, you can have, you know, outdoor lettuce and rocket and 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 that sort of thing going, spinach. Um certainly if you've got a bit of fleece and some and some cloches to Christmas. Uh, so it's not till you get a real burst of cold weather, you know, it's a bit of sustained frost or snow, um, that, that all that goes. And that can be in the new year for very often. So, yeah, it's that, that period when you feel it should be giving you a harvest actually is the, the bleakest time of the year in the vegetable garden, which is the end of May, beginning of June. And and here and here we are now. But there are things you can be doing. Obviously, you know you can. So let's let us sort of move into talking about what you could be doing in June and July to make sure you have future harvests. So what would you be sowing? You know what, what could you be sowing late May into June? Let's start with the easy stuff. Succession. So lettuce, and I eat a lot of lettuce. Lettuce is my mainstay vegetable. I eat lettuce every day of my life when I'm at home. So. And I said earlier that, that having a sort of 50 perfect lettuce in a bed, in a row, neatly weeded, perfectly spaced, is not much use to the average family, even if there are a lot of you in the family, because not many families can eat, say, more than three or four lettuce a day. And do the maths. Three or four lettuce a day are going to take two weeks. And in two weeks or three weeks, they're going to bolt and be over. So what you want is succession. You want, ideally, in a perfect world, you want half a dozen lettuce ready every day of the year. And that's enough for you and your friends. And if it's just a small family, one or two lettuce every day of the year. 
It doesn't work as neatly as that. But what you try and do is sow lettuce from March through till August every two weeks. Just sow a few. I sow a small seed tray, one of a small size seed tray, or, or a couple with different types. And you're looking to prick out maybe a dozen, 20 lettuce, and, and they will be planted out all the time. So that's the first thing, succession. Keep them going small amounts, little and often. The second thing is, is this time of year, it's worth sowing your final sowings of peas, a late crop of those, carrots, um, spinach. Um, these are all things that normally you would sow earlier in the year. This is the, the last sowing, so to speak. Uh, it's not too late to sow tomatoes, but it's getting late. When you know, would so, be too late? When would be too late for sowing that tomato? To, to allow time for a tomato to grow, mature, produce flowers and harvestable fruit. I've never sown tomatoes later than the middle of May. Um, I would have thought the second week of June. And then you're looking at a September, even October harvest. It depends if you've got a greenhouse or not. If you've got a greenhouse particularly if you've got a heated greenhouse, you'd be, you could go into June. I mean, I, I remember filming in a garden in Guernsey and they always made a point of picking fresh tomatoes on Christmas Day. You know, because, but but they, they had heated greenhouses in Guernsey. Yes, what a dream. You know, what was, a dream. Was, yeah, it was completely different. And what they did was they grew the um, tomatoes and then rather like professional sweet pea growers, they cut the cordons down in August, September, laid them along the ground, so you had about three, four foot on the ground, and then retied them. And where they touched the ground, they rooted. And then you got a fresh cordon coming up and you started all over again. Um, I would certainly think it's worth... Well, you could direct sow some squash. You could certainly sow courgettes. You could... Um, it's absolutely not too late to sow sweet corn, Florence fennel. Um, definitely not too late to sow some cabbage, winter cabbages. You won't be harvesting them much before Christmas, but I mean, winter is winter. Winter goes right through till March. You know, think you're, you're starting to think in June of what's going to be happening, uh, if not next spring, at the, back, the other side of winter. January, February, March. So your winter crops, beetroot, turnips, swede. Uh, it's getting a little late for parsnips. Parsnips are a slow burner. You, you really want to sow parsnips March, April, May at the very latest. Um, you could sow, you, but, but those root crops, definitely you could sow. You can sow um, spinach, chard, um, you could you celeriac, celery. Celeriac and celery need a bit of time. It's getting late. It's certainly getting late for those, but it'd be worth a try. Chicories, you could sow in June. But again, get on with it. Give them a long growing period because the way chicory grows, you're trying to basically grow a root up until October. And then the, the big green foliage is feeding the root and then for all the radicchio chicories, the Palo Rosa and Rosa de Verona and Rosa, uh, you know, there are about six of them. Um, then the, that, those green leaves are much too bitter to eat. 
So gradually you remove them and what the, it's the new, the fresh growth that starts to appear around about September and goes on into November, December, even January, um, is the delicious chicory. So, so they need some time, but you could do it. Um, Talking of leaves, where, where are you on, on um, do you ever grow any oriental uh, leaves, oriental yeah, veg? I, mean, I things, do, things like but Mizuna. not in June. Not in mm. June. I, I grow uh, Mitsuna, Mibuna, um, Pak Choi, um, mustards, um, different types. We had, we had a very good purple mustard this winter that we found that once you did the first cut, the, the second, well, subsequent growths, and that could be or about four, were much finer, much frizzier. So you had this very finely cut frizz of leaves that we, we cut when they were about sort of anything from two to eight inches tall. And they were rather, had the mustardy flavour, but they were quite delicate. Um, so, yeah, I do. Uh, but, but I grow them as winter salad crops. Uh, and we very rarely cook with them. I mean, I like eating raw leaves. Um, and, and as I say, I really like salads. But, uh, but you see, when I was brought up, and I suspect with great respect you too, um, our mothers would put a salad on the table and it would invariably contain hard-boiled eggs and beetroot and, and some, some rather floppy lettuce. Butterhead, um, butterhead lettuce. Butterhead lettuce, which, which actually can be delicious. Can be delicious. Mm. Uh, Webb's wonderful, can be a good thing. Um, butterhead lettuce and served with salad cream. You know, the idea of salad dressing, let alone mayonnaise, was ex- too exotic. It was it was salad cream out of a bottle. And well, that I, was salad. I, I know my Maybe mother... you well, lived a more exotic life. <laughs> oh, my mother did love her salad dressings. French yeah. dressing. It was always well, called French dressing. My, see, my parents... Uh, didn't get, didn't I mean they knew about it, but it wasn't really something you had at home. Yeah, yeah. it's when you went out and ate oh. out, you'd have French dressing. I mean, absolutely. How how much are kind of you know just even taking lettuce as a, as a sort of encapsulating how food has changed in the last mm. well decade decades. But you see, where I feel out of kilter with with the whole whole food culture is two things. One. I haven't really been affected by the whole sort of explosion of oriental food in Britain. When I lived in London, and I left London in 1988, um, there was one Thai restaurant, about three Japanese. I don't believe there were any Korean or anything like that. And and Indian food were, were all sort of Indian takeaways, so low level. In fact, there was one below our studio in Old Street that was absolutely wonderful. And it had sort of bare tables and, and, and the local Asian community would go and eat there. And it was, it was very act and great. But, you know, it, for instance, in London, when I lived in London, certainly when I first went to London, uh, Jewish food was really, really, uh, you know, salt beef bars and, and was, was actually quite significant influence. Um, and Italian uh, and French, whereas, so so that we don't cook at home at all. We don't do any kind of. Uh, we've never stir fried. I've never stir fried in my life. Uh, we don't do anything like that. However, um, I love eating it when I go to those countries, and um, I think that you find your cuisine 
in the same way as you find the clothes you like, you find the music you like. And at a certain age, you tend to return to it. It doesn't mean to say you don't enjoy a lot of foods and things, but home and where you garden and, the, and what you grow for home tends to veer in a certain relatively lim- limited line. So I love really good old-fashioned British cooking and I love really good Italian food. And those are my two loves. And then there's some French provincial cooking, although I think that the modern, you know, I think um, uh, a lot of the contributions of French cooking in the 80s and 90s were, were disastrous, really. Um, you know, tiny little wisps of, and um, you know, I really, as soon as I see the word jus, I run for the hills. Uh, <laughs> what's wrong with a sauce? You know? Gravy, um, gravy. Well, there's that fantastic scene in the in uh, the Sopranos when Tony Soprano arrives at a table and the mob are all eating and they say gravy's good tonight, Tony. And they're talking about the tomato sauce. Uh, <laughs> Delicious. Uh, yeah, it's so. I think I, I mean, Sarah and I were saying actually just last night when we are dinner consisted of a large bowl of of lettuce cut from the garden with a dressing made um, with very good olive oil and very good uh, vinegar and and some mustard and salt and pepper. And then um, pasta and a sauce made from our tomatoes. Uh, And that was it. And we did say, actually, when it's good, it's really good. You know, it, it never fails. When it's good, it never fails to be good. It doesn't, it never disappoints. It's not, it's rather in the same way, a really good fried egg or poached egg is always good. You don't say, no, no, we, you know, we used to eat fried eggs but or poached eggs. Uh, but I've done that. I grew out of that. You don't do that. And I, and I, and I think that um, novelty for the sake of it either in the garden or the kitchen, I actually think it's just not very creative. I, don't, I think it's sort of lazy almost in a way. It's not, it's not trying to do something really well. Um, it's in the, in the same way that, you know, I grow dahlias every year. I grow sweet peas every year. I don't think I've oh, been there, done that. And it's the same, exactly the same with beans. Now, what I will do is I will try a new variety. Or I will try and be humble enough to learn and say, okay, I've grown cos lettuce for, you know, for 50 years. I personally have grown them and I've been in a garden where they've grown for over 60 years. But I'm really open to new ways to do it or to find out and, and, and how to do it. So I think you need humility, but at the same time, I don't think you necessarily need novelty. Mm. I mean, it's the perfect way to end, really, just talking about food because everything we grow should have a, you know, a natural outcome in what you enjoy. So I, I just wondered what what um what homegrown fruit or veg would be in your summertime desert island dish? Definitely raspberries. Um, in terms of vegetables, uh, I mean, again, I go back to my original answer when we started this chat. For me, it's season by season by season. So I await the arrival of raspberries and gooseberries, actually, with huge pleasure. And 
blackcurrants and redcurrants because then I can have summer pudding. And uh, summer pudding, you know, the, the greatest sacrilege is to add strawberries to summer pudding. But uh, you can add raspberries, but, it, but you must have um, redcurrants and blackcurrants. So, um, but I love fresh raspberries. Love them. Um, and they've got to be, I think the great beauty of, of fruit from the garden is it's warm. You know, chilled fruit is fruit that's had its flavour taken out. Chilled strawberries, you know, it is a sort of bland thing. A tomato should be eaten warm. Warm from the greenhouse tastes so much better or warm from the sun than the soil, than, than something out of the fridge. The fridge is a disaster zone when it comes to fruit and veg. Um, so raspberries in late June, July, and then on autumn raspberries through till, till October. Um, I, I love the first pears that come through, although they don't keep so well. So actually by the end of the pear season, you rather feel you've had enough pears for a bit. Apples, which in our garden start early September and, and go on harvesting into November, and then we store them and eat them right through till now. Um, in terms of vegetables... I mean, some of my favorite dishes, just pasta primavera. So you, you have fresh peas, fresh beans, um, maybe some baby carrots. Uh, it's just delicious and a really good salad. Uh, I'm easy to please. I'm cheap. Uh, I think, as I said, I had a charred omelet for, for breakfast that was a joy. Um, I really, really love the first dish of potatoes, new potatoes, which we always harvest on my birthday at the beginning of July. Um, and, and they're not always as good. I mean, <laughs> one fetishizes these things. If you're honest, some years they're not that good. But it is good. The occasion is good. And next year may be better. And last year has be better. You know, there's, there's change. It's never the same. It's, it's not... It's not Groundhog Day. It's just come round in the same way that Christmas isn't Groundhog Day or your birthday. You know, that's why I say it. That's why I love seasonal food because it just, it comes round, but you're not going back. It comes round and moves forward all the time. I think my favourite foods are the ones that, that have a very limited season and therefore sort of are self-destructing, if you like. You know, the asparagus is the, the, the strawberries, the raspberries, the, the, the pears, the, the purple sprouting broccoli. Whereas the ones that have a very long eating season are fine and necessary and good, but they don't thrill me as much. I mean, for example, we've still got beetroot in the ground. We've still got um, these things, which, yeah, I, I like beetroot, but I don't love it. And I think that's the difference. I think it's seasonality that really sets my bars alight. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>